We are continuing in a series where we're finding Jesus in the Old Testament. Now I want to start again this morning with just asking, why, why do we do this? Why is it important for us to find Jesus in the Old Testament, prophesied in types, His images in the Old Testament, his, uh, his, um, the, the foreshadowing of Christ? Why do we do this? And I want you to take a moment to think. I hope, we've, we've mentioned a couple reasons already throughout this series. I hope right now that at least some passages are coming to your mind of why it's important to do it. And I'm not a mean pastor, but I wouldn't like call anyone out and ask you to come up here and give an answer. But what if I, what if I did? What would you say? Do you have anything in your, think about it? Just give, I'll just give you a minute here. Hopefully, the story of Jesus on the road to Emmaus came to your mind. In that passage, he's walking with his disciples and he chastises them. He says, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So there's a couple reasons packed into that passage where we, we don't want to be foolish. We don't want to be slow of heart to believe. We want to have a full understanding, not only of our Messiah, but we want to have a full understanding of our history of faith. Most of the Bible is the Old Testament. And so we, we also want to have a full understanding of our scriptures, not a superficial understanding, not an immature understanding, not, uh, not, not a, uneducated faith, but we want to know that the Old Testament and the New Testament aren't just, it doesn't, the one doesn't just follow the other, but they're embedded together. This was God's plan all along. Another passage perhaps you thought of, and I think this is maybe the most important reason why we're looking for Christ in the Old Testament throughout all scriptures, John 5, 39 where he warns the Pharisees. He says, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And we search Scriptures here. We believe in eternal life. What does he say? You search them because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. So we want to make sure that we are finding the accurate and correct witness in Scripture and looking to Jesus everywhere we can find Him in Scripture. Another passage that I've been meditating on this week is from Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount. Of course, in this passage, Jesus goes to the top of a mountain, He sits down, and then all His followers come and gather around Him, and He begins a sermon. And first, the first thing He does in the sermon is He's, he's giving them unexpected uh, outcomes. He said, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. So you're blessed if you mourn. Blessed are those that are hungry and thirsty because you're going to be filled. If you're hunger and thirst for righteousness, you will be filled. So he's, he's already breaking their expectations of who he is blessing. And then he gives the story about uh, the light on the hill. The, the city on a hill can't be hidden. And you are a light. And don't put your light under a bushel. But you need to live your life in such a way that other men will see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. And then he goes and he just starts contrasting the law. He says, you've heard it said this, but I say this. You've heard it said this, but I say this. You've heard it said this, 
but I say this. And so he went through and just kind of gave an alternate interpretation of all the laws that they were so familiar with. But before he got to that part of the sermon, he knew that after this sermon there would be a question whispered at dinner tables. And there would be discussion in the back rows of those who were sitting and listening to him preach. He knew that this same question would be weaponized by the Pharisees. And the question was, how, how can this be the Messiah if what he teaches is so different from the law that we learned? And so before he got to that part of the sermon, he says this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I want to think about that for a minute. He said all the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, the law, all the prophets, I didn't come to abolish them, I came to fulfill them. Now that's different than saying I came to obey them. That's not what he was saying. He said, I came to fulfill them. That word fulfill, it's the same word that is used to describe when the apostles threw their nets into the sea and they pulled it back and it was full of fish. It's the same word. The word fulfill is the same word used in Acts on the day of Pentecost. When they were waiting for the Holy Spirit, they were all in the room and it says the Holy Spirit came and filled the room. And you can see that the room was filled because the people were spiritually animated in a way that they hadn't been previously. It's the same word, filled the room. In that same way, he says, I came to fulfill the law and the prophets. So what was he saying? Because they were, they were thinking he was minimizing the law and the prophets. He's saying, no, I'm not the one minimizing it. You guys are the one minimizing it. The picture that comes to mind is a garment. He's saying, this is, this is the law and the prophets. This is all you've known about the law and the prophets. And it gives you a pretty good image. If you had no idea what his shirt was, you'd get a pretty good idea what's going to happen, like what this is designed for. But he says, I came to actually put it on. Now all of a sudden it's not just two-dimensional, it's going to be three-dimensional. You're going to see it moving. You're going to see it in action. I came to fulfill the law. So you have a, a, a more clear a deeper, more resonant picture of what the law was pointing to. So I think one picture we have is the law like a garment that Jesus put on. And all of a sudden now, it's not just something hanging on a hanger, it's something that's interacting, moving, it's alive. That's what he meant when he said, I came to fulfill the law. And Hebrews chapter 9, if you want to turn to Hebrews chapter 9, I think Hebrews chapter 9 is a fantastic example of how Jesus is the embodiment of what we read in the Old Testament. So let's turn there and let's find Jesus in Hebrews chapter 9, specifically in the role of the high priest. Turn to Hebrews chapter 9 and let's look at Jesus as our high priest. In order to do this, we're going to look at uh, kind of two categories. First, we're going to look at the Old Covenant. Then we're going to look at the New Covenant. We're going to see aspects of each. So let's go ahead and just start reading in verse 1, and we'll read down through verse 10. It says, Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of presence. It is called 
the holy place. And behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place or the holy of holies, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn with uh, holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant, that's the Ten Commandments, and above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. So what he's describing here is the tabernacle. And I think we have an image we can put up of the tabernacle. And so you see the outermost border, that would be uh, like a fence, and then you have a, a big courtyard. And if we can zoom in to the inner, uh, the inner square there, is that's the actual tent. And it was meticulously designed in the Pentateuch. And you're familiar with this. You would enter on the right there. And you have the candles. You have the table of presence there. And this is, and you have uh, the altar of incense. And this is where the priest would go in daily. And they would offer the incense, which was like the prayers of the people going up continually before the Lord. And he describes that. But then he describes the most holy place, or the holy of holies, and that was behind a veil. You see the veil cutting it into a third and kind of guarding it. He, the writer of Hebrews associates that uh, uh, the altar of incense with the holy of holies. You have to go past and through that cloud of incense before you go into the holy of holies. And in there, they had the Ark of the Covenant, which was... The presence of God's glory. This is the ark that when they, if they touched it improperly, they would die. This was the, the actual, uh, visible glory of God shrouded twice over so that it couldn't be seen casually. The priest would only go in once a year. And in the Ark of the Covenant, they had the tablets of stone, the Ten Commandments. They had a sampling of the manna, and they had Aaron's rod that had budded that proved, it was proving that he was the chosen high priest and that Moses was the chosen leader. So all this is describing uh, the tent. And again, this was meticulously detailed in the Pentateuch. Every piece of fabric, how it was layered, how it was built. There was no nothing left up to interpretation. It was all delineated by God through Moses to build this tent, this tabernacle, which was a precursor of the temple. So that's the tent. But now let's continue and let's look at the blood in the Old Covenant. Look at verse 6. It says, "...the preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the section, performing their ritual duties, but into the second only..." Into the second section, only the high priest goes, only one. But he only once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself (coughs) and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates the way into the holy place is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing. Now, we're not going to get into great detail here, but what he's saying is that outer court and that inner court is symbolic of the old way making way for the new way and now we're in the new way it says which is symbolic for the present age i think that means what was then the present age and according to the arrangements verse 9 gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper but deal only 
with food and drinks and various washings and regulations of the body imposed until the time of reformation. So what can we learn about the blood that is in the Old Covenant? Well, first of all, look at verse 7. We see it's definitely required. It says you can go into the Holy of Holies, but not without taking blood. So the first thing to note about the blood is it's required. Secondly, we see the blood in the Old Covenant. Not only was it required, but it was goats, it was calves, it was bulls, it was animal blood. We see this down in verse 12 and 13. It says, He entered once for all into the holy place, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of His own blood. So it's contrasting Jesus. But the old way was animal blood. And then look at 13, the end of verse 13. It says, With the ashes of heifer they sanctify for the purification of the flesh. And so all these old rituals, they would purify the, the flesh, but not the conscience. So it was addressing exterior things. It was addressing the <clears throat> appearance of things. It wasn't taking care of the root issue. Just like the law was an outward covering. It showed the outside, but it wasn't animated. It didn't take care of the real root issue. So the blood was really kind of a stand-in. Now let's look at the high priest. This is interesting. What does it say? Verse 7, But into the second only the high priest goes, but he once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. So the one thing we need to know about the high priest here is that he was a sinner needing blood offered for himself. This was very critical. In fact, tradition says that when the high priest would go once a year into that innermost holy of holies, they began putting a rope around their, a, a scarlet rope around their ankle or around their waist. Because if that high priest were to go in and he hadn't properly made atonement for his sins, he would be struck dead by the glory of God. And they would have no way of pulling him out. They'd have to wait a year with that body. And they wouldn't want a body making, uh, uh, contaminating the Holy of Holies. So if the high priest were to die, they would pull him out. It was so critical that the priest made atonement for his own sins before he went in. So in this Old Covenant, both the tent, the blood, and the high priest, we see some serious shortcomings. Now let's look at the New Covenant. As we look at the New Covenant... First, let's consider the tent. Look down at verse 11. <coughs> verse 11 says, But when the high priest appeared, I'm sorry, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation. So still talking about the tabernacle. But he's saying he came and now he's a high priest in a different tent, a different tabernacle. First of all, this, this one is greater. It's more perfect. We see that it's not made with hands, that it is not of this creation. What's going on there? He's talking about a spiritual tabernacle. And we have a little bit of an explanation of that back in chapter 8. If you just look across the page and we look back at chapter 8 and um, verse 5, it says that these things serve as a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. 
So the temple, uh, the, the tabernacle on earth was made with human hands following very explicit con- uh, construction details, but it's just a copy. It's just a shadow of a heavenly one, a spiritual one, one that God made, one that's not made with human hands. And this is the tent that Jesus now ministers to us in. And so we already saw how Jesus fulfilled the law like you would put on a shirt. And here we see that the law, the prophet, all those things in the Old Testament were both a copy and a shadow. So let's think about that for a second. A copy and a shadow. I picked up a a mask at a gas station. Look at this. You guys thought I wasn't wearing a mask all this time. It's just, it's an exact replica of my face. Isn't that amazing? Now, this is a copy of my face, but it's not my face, right? Now imagine if, let's say I was gone for a long period of time, maybe, maybe to help our littlest ones in the house, they might, uh, put my shirt on my chair, something like that, and say, look, this is a reminder, Papa is coming home soon enough. He'll be here. And they would look at the shirt and they would remember, oh yeah, that's right, that's that's what his beard looks like. And it was just for the little ones, just to remind them, I am coming back, and they would look at that. But when I did come back finally, they wouldn't be interested in the shirt anymore. They'd want to spend time with me. Because it's just a garment. This is just a copy of my face. It's not the real deal. And in the same way, the writer of Hebrews is trying to impart to the readers, listen, we've gone beyond what was once laid down. Look at, in fact, look at verse 13. It says, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old, this is in chapter 8, verse 13, is ready to vanish away. So this is, an, this is not in conflict when Jesus said, I, I, I didn't come to abolish it. What he's saying is, Something better is here. The the law, the prophets, they're not as useful as they once were because now we have the actual substance of what we were looking for. No longer a a copy and no longer a shadow. Everyone look at, find your shadow right now. Can you see your shadow on the ground? What, What do we know about a shadow? What do you think about the shadow in comparison to you? Shadow is just two dimensional. You're three dimensional, right? A shadow, you vaguely can see the shape that it makes. Maybe if you had just the right lighting, you would be able to discern what it was that was making the shadow. But the shadow is not you. The shadow is imprecise. It's unclear. It's two-dimensional. It's inferior. Everything that we read in the Old Testament is just a shadow of what we find in Christ. So the tent is greater, it's more perfect, it's not made with hands. Let's consider the blood. What's different about the blood in the New Covenant? Well, we see that it is divine. No longer longer animal blood, but human blood. And not just human blood, but divine blood. Not only that, but it's invaluable blood. What does it say in Acts chapter 20 and verse 28? It says that Christ's blood purchased you, His church. Or turn to Romans chapter 8 and verse 32. We see something about the categorical significance of Christ's blood. It says in Romans 8.32, it says, He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? So what's that verse saying? That's saying He already gave His Son, the blood of His Son, 
So now everything else that he could possibly give you is of less value than that. So why would he withhold it? There's nothing he's going to withhold from you because he already gave the most valuable thing in human existence and all of created history, the blood of Christ. So in the new covenant, we have an escalation. We have a tent not made with human hands. We have blood that is divine, invaluable. And here's the most important thing. Look what it does. It, it, it actually purifies our consciousness. Look at verse 14 of Hebrews chapter 9. It says, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Now we're going to we're going to end on that verse. We're going to not yet, but we will. And we're going to really unpack what that means to cleanse our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. But right now just to suffice it to say in contrast, remember the old blood, the old way, the old covenant only dealt with the superficial. This takes care of the conscience. And now let's look at the priest. Look at verse 11. When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, This is critical. Christ now is currently our high priest. He has present application for His ministry in your life. We're not just looking back at what Christ did. We're setting our hearts and our minds on what Christ is currently doing for you. He's currently serving in a spiritual tabernacle as your high priest, ministering on your behalf. What else do we see? We see that He is seated in glory. Christ is seated in glory. Look in chapter 8 and verse 1. It says, Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty, capital M, in heaven. So what's the contrast here? Before, you had the glory of God shrouded, covered twice over, couldn't be viewed but once a year by one person, and that with great risk. The high priest was able to go in and come out temporarily. But now we have a high priest who is actually seated in the glory. And that's what we see in Revelation chapter 5 and various passages where we see the throne room of heaven. So we have a high priest that is not at risk of being destroyed by the glory of God. Rather, he is seated in the glory. And then we have a high priest who was himself the sacrifice. Again, we see that in verse 14. How much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without spot, without blemish to God to purify our conscience from dead works. So, in comparison to the old high priest who was himself a sinner, Jesus Christ, rather than offering animal blood, offered His own blood. Now, where does all this take us? Maybe all this you've already thought through. Maybe all this is just a recap for you, but I don't want to skip over verse 14. Here is the biggest contrast in this portion of Hebrews that I think the writer is drawing between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Whereas the Old Covenant could not do anything about our conscience, it says this New Covenant purifies our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So what we have now is not just salvation from something, but also salvation to something. That's the biggest difference between us and our faith and our worship and the faith and worship in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, they strive. They would do it annually. They would do it daily. They would constantly offer sacrifices. It was blood constantly being poured out all to save them from destruction. 
We have that and more. Not only are we saved from destruction, but we are saved to what? Serve the living God. You have been saved in order to do something. You have been saved to serve the living God. I think of Ephesians chapter 2. This is a verse that the first half you probably certainly have memorized. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, and is not a result of works that no one may boast. We all would say amen to that. Yes, I've been saved, and it's not because of my works. But too many times it's like, okay, here's the works. I know I can't do the works to get saved, but that's not God saying, okay, so stay as far away from works as possible. That's not what He's saying. He's saying you've been saved not of works so that no one can boast, for we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for the good works, which He uh, prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You have been saved for a purpose preordained to execute good works. Can I ask you, what good works are you doing? The New Testament is full of commands that explain the good works that you've been saved to. You've been saved in order to perform those good works. And why do we perform them? What's the point of these good works? Remember, in Hebrews it talks about we've been saved from the dead works. I want to land now in Matthew chapter 5, that sermon we talked about at the beginning, in Matthew chapter 5, this is so critical. As I think Matthew chapter 5 and verse 16 is the closest definition that we're going to find in Scripture in what it means to glorify God. This is what you've been saved to do. He's talking about the light on a, on a, in a city on a hill can't be hidden. And people don't put a lamp under a basket, but they put it on a stand so that it gives light to all that are in the house. In that same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. You're the living advertisement for God. So We know it. So many people have a false understanding of who God is. They've had fathers who have betrayed them and they assume God is just like that. They've had mothers who haven't taken care of them and they impart and they impose that upon God. They see pain and suffering in the world and they say, how could a loving God allow this? The solution that God has offered is you and me. He's saved you. He's equipped you. He's redeemed you. He's empowered you. He's strengthened you. He called you. He preordained it so that you go out of this room you go into your neighborhoods, you go into your homes, you go into your workplaces, you go to places you haven't been, you find opportunities, and you do good works. So when people see you, they're impressed with God. And they think, I want to get to know that God. That's the point. Now, what the elders and I have discussed and what we're going to be doing, we're going to try to do it once a month now. Remember when we first started Harvest, we had this thing called God at Work. And it was supposed to be like testimonies that we would have videos of. And we're going we're to still call it God at work, but it's going to be different. Instead of God at work and a testimony of what, how God changed someone's life, we're going to have people come up about once a month and they're just going to share with you how they're obeying this command. How they're out in the community here or in some other community or serving on a board or involved with an organization or just something they're doing where they're exercising good works that's helping other people 
and bringing them in some way, in some capacity to God. And our hope is by putting people on stage, you'll see one, they're just like you. They're, they're, they're not, you know, they're not called to full-time ministry. They're just as busy as you are. They're just as intimidated as you are in coming up here and sharing their story. But they're doing it. They're doing some kind of work to serve the living God so others see them and are impressed with God. Our hope is that you're going to see these people and you're going to think, how, how can I do that? What am I doing? What can I do different than I am right now? And, and the idea is that 99% of the work that goes on in a church doesn't take place within the walls of this building. This is how God planned it. All the New Testament, it's not Christianity 2.0. It was the plan all along. He's empowered you to go save you from dead works to the good works that others may see it and glorify God. I'm going to ask our worship team to come forward. We're going to close in a word of prayer and then we're going to sing a song. And I hope you take the time as we sing this last song. Just ask the Lord, what would you have me do? How would you have me sacrifice my time? The things that I want to do with my free time, my energy, my money, so that I can serve you, so I can lead others to get a view of you that they wouldn't have if it wasn't for me. Will you stand and let's pray. Lord, this is one of those things that I, I, I imagine every person in this room would attest to and say amen to and they say, yes, that is true. But I also know human nature, and Lord, all of us have ruts of one degree or another, and it's hard to get out of it. It's hard to accurately evaluate our life to see how, how and what are we doing for your glory? Who are we serving? What good works are we executing? Lord, would you just give us a vision to see that? Give us a vision to look at our own lives and to see what could be if only we would yield and submit to the strength that Christ has ready to exercise through us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.